So I encourage you to pull out your Bible if you have it with you. And if you don't have a Bible with you, the passage that we're going to be looking at today from the Gospel of Luke uh, is, if you turn the page, it's on page 7. And we've been continuing through the, the, the Gospel of Luke. And last week we looked at what I called the, the final calm before the storm. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane pouring out his heart before the Lord in prayer. Um, getting ready to suffer, but the suffering for him was beginning in even contemplation of his suffering, preparing to drink of the cup of the, the wrath of God to the dregs for the sins of his people and the mercy displayed. And we said last week as well that, that the, the text that we're looking at today is, is where literally all hell begins to break loose, that the powers of hell being brought down upon Jesus um, to suffer and to die, to, as we, we confessed just a few minutes ago, that he descended into hell, uh, taking the judgment of God. And, and that's what's beginning to, to come upon him in this passage. So, again, this is uh, Luke chapter 22. Um, and if you're watching online, you can always Google the passage as well. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 47. And I encourage you to turn there uh, with me. I'll begin reading in verse 47. And while Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the, the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else said to him, you also are one of them. But Jesus said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were talking about. 
And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. And they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is sharp, that it is active, that it is living. Father, please, we pray, uh, work in my humble, feeble words. Lord, we, we pray that it wouldn't be my words that would speak, but that it would be your word. Lord, I, I pray that you would hold me back from saying anything that is false, anything that is untrue. Lord, I, I pray that you would be uh, merciful to all of us to... Um, not have your word fall on deaf hearts, but you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Lord, we pray that you would change us, shape us, renew us from this passage again, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes with children, you might play different games, guessing games of different sorts, um, but also sometimes you'll do a this or that kind of a game. Uh, but you could, you could do a similar game of what is easier. Uh, is it easier to sit on your couch and watch TV or to go to the gym and work out? Is it easier to pick up drive through McDonald's or to make a meal at home? Is it easier to hang out with friends or study for the exam? Is it easier to play on your phone or to read a book? Is it easier to stay up late or to, to wake up early? And as you think about these questions, I think you can begin to see that the path of least resistance is not always the right path. It's not always the best path. Sometimes doing the right thing can actually be harder than doing the wrong thing, that in the short term, doing the right thing brings suffering, it brings hardship into our lives. Oh, sorry, doing the wrong thing, yeah, doing the right thing brings suffering into our lives. I get, get, get it right here. Uh, but doing the wrong thing can seem easier in the short term. And that's really what we begin to see from this text that you heard me read a moment ago, that, that there are many examples of people doing what seems easier in the short term, but it doesn't turn out well for them. Um, and so we're going to look at this in three sections. So first is that it often seems easier to betray Jesus. The second is that it often seems easier to fight for Jesus. And then the third is that it often seems easier to deny Jesus. So it seems easier to betray Jesus to fight for Jesus, to deny Jesus. But we'll see throughout that our calling as believers is actually to suffer for Jesus. And so let's start with the, the first heading there, 
that it often seems easier to betray Jesus than to suffer for Jesus. And this is what we learn in verse 47 and 48 in your Bible, if you look there, that Judas, as we've been discussing throughout the past few weeks, saw the storm of suffering coming on the horizon. And as we often do as well, he wanted to get ahead of the suffering. And so he went in advance to the religious leaders who were trying to kill Jesus and offered to hand them over to exchange Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And of course, they didn't know how to find Jesus, so he leads them straight to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They didn't know how to identify Jesus, and so he goes and, and greets Jesus with a kiss. And as we think about Judas here betraying Jesus with a kiss, it may seem like something that we would never do, could never do. We say, I've never betrayed Jesus with a kiss. This is something that, that it's somebody else's issue. But what we see is that it's often easier to betray Jesus to, than to suffer for Jesus. In the short term, it's easier to exchange Jesus for something else that seems better, that seems like the path of least resistance. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, we read this, that in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And I think about that every time I, I struggle with sin or a temptation that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And the point is that suffering comes as we try to resist sin, that resisting sin is hard, it's difficult. And in the short term, we think that we can exchange Jesus for something else that seems more expedient, that seems better for us, that we exchange Jesus for a lie because telling the truth can be hard, it can bring suffering, or we exchange Jesus for a lust because self-denial can be hard, or we exchange Jesus for a promotion because biblical priorities in our work life can be hard, can bring suffering. And if you think about it, there is an element of exchange in every single sin that we commit. Every single sin is, is saying, I'm going to exchange what God says is right for what I think is best. I'm going to exchange the truth about God for a lie. I'm going to believe somewhere that taking something other than Jesus at the center of my life is going to to make me happy, is going to make my life better in some way. So I'm going to choose this before Jesus. And for us, it may not be 30 pieces of silver, but we actually can betray Jesus in our hearts for far less, that we betray Jesus with gossip or anger or pleasure, a host of other sins that we want to put in exchange for Jesus. And then tragically, like Judas, 
We can often exchange Jesus for something else with a kiss. That outwardly we read our Bibles or go to church or claim to be believers or show affection for Jesus outwardly. But inwardly we are exchanging Jesus for something else, for some pattern of sin or pleasure. Uh, It is a, a persistent pattern in our lives where we're saying, I don't want Jesus, I want this other thing. It's what we read in Romans chapter 1 about humanity, that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so then you think, how does Jesus respond to people who exchange him for something else? And look at how Jesus responds to Judas in verse 48. A former friend comes to hand you over to evil men. What would you say? How would you react? Would you yell at the person? Would you shame the person? And and what Jesus does is he asks this simple, loving question. He says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And I think that that's the same question that, that Jesus would ask Every single one of us, when we consider doing something our way rather than his way. Christian, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus would say, is that pleasure really worth more than me? Is that relationship really worth more than me? Is that addiction really worth more than me? Is that job really worth more than me? Is the respect of that other person really worth more than me? Is is that raise really worth more than me? What is more valuable than Jesus to us? And when we really face it deep down, we know that there's nothing on earth or in heaven or the universe that is more valuable than Jesus if we're looking at the long term. But in the short term, we take the easier path. We take the path of least resistance. We say, I'll I'll take the 30 pieces of, of silver rather than suffer for Christ. That will bring me the happiness, the life, the hope that I'm seeking. And again, it's often easier to betray Jesus than to suffer for Jesus. And that's our first heading But the second heading is this, that it often seems easier to fight for Jesus than to suffer for Jesus. And that's what we see in verse 49 to 53 in your Bible, if you look there. The disciples, like Judas, also saw suffering on the horizon. It said in the very end of our passage last week that they were sleeping for sorrow, that they they knew that something was coming. Jesus had been warning them. But they couldn't stay awake. They, they've been sleeping when they should have been watching and praying that they would not enter into temptation. But here Jesus tells them to rise. The, this band of evil men comes with swords and clubs. And, and they recognize finally that Judas is the one who is going to hand Jesus over. They didn't know it was Judas. It's like the moment in the movie where you finally realize who the villain is. And it's a surprise. It's a twist. And they're completely shocked, and they're, they're afraid. They don't know what to do. And so they ask Jesus, Jesus, should we strike with the sword? And it seems from the text that they don't wait for Jesus to answer. 
because it says that, that one of them pulls out a sword and strikes at the servant of the high priest. And just to think about what this disciple is doing, um, Peter, as we know from the Gospel of John, that he's, he's striking at the servant of the high priest in front of Jesus and presumably to kill him in a very violent, visceral way. But he misses. He's not very good with his sword, apparently, because he only nicks the guy's ear, slices off his ear. And then you say, well, how would Jesus then respond? How would Jesus respond to this disciple? Well, with Judas, he's very gentle and loving in a very um, mysterious way that he asks a question. But for this disciple, he actually gives a stern rebuke. He, he tells them to, to put away the sword. As we read in Matthew, he says that those who live by the sword will also perish by the sword. That, that he demonstrates his power, his love, his mercy in healing the ear of this servant. And I mentioned last week as well that um, in John especially, names are often like footnotes. It's saying, if you want to verify what I'm saying here, here's the name of the person to talk to. And this servant is named in the book of John, indicating that he may have actually become a believer, become a, a witness of the work of Christ being healed. We don't know for sure. But here he experiences this saving, healing power of Jesus. But we think about the, the action of the disciples to use violence to try to pull out their swords and, and fight for Jesus. And I think that we can identify with them. We can understand them, that we are a lot like them. They saw the, the prospect of suffering on the horizon, and they said, let's fight. And as Christians, often we can see the prospect of suffering on the horizon. We know so many places in the world where Christians suffer persecution. Even in the West, we see a decline of Christian values, of Christian dominance and culture in various ways. We can see a head-on collision between sexual liberties and religious liberties. And Christians can become afraid and can say, let's fight. And so we try to fight. We pull out the, the sword of words on social media and strike at others. We pull out the sword of litigation in the courts. We pull out the, the sword of belligerence with our friends and our families and our neighbors. And this is where we have to be extremely careful. J.C. <coughs> Ryle, in his commentary um, on this passage, says this is a very insightful thought about fighting for Jesus. He says that the, the lesson before us is deeply instructive. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and endure calmly is far more hard than to stir about and to take part in the battle. Crusaders will always be far more numerous than martyrs. The passive graces of religion are far more rare and precious than the active graces. And he goes on to point out that Someone can fight for Jesus from insincere motives, uh, from pride or partisanship or a desire for power, but that someone will seldom suffer 
for Jesus for anything but sincere motives. And I think that, that Ryle is right. And I, and I love his phrase that crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for Christians to, to fight for their own rights or to the rights of, of others. Um, that, that we, it's not that we have to just get in the front line for martyrdom or sign up for it. But we always need to be very careful in how we fight. That the way in which believers fight for Christ is not how the world fights for their beliefs. That we don't fight with the, the sword of harsh words on social media. We don't fight with litigation unless absolutely necessary. There is a place for it. We don't fight by um, belligerence with others around us. But instead, we, we take up the sword of the Spirit. We take up gentleness. We take up humility. We take up love. We take up long-suffering. We, we take up love for enemies, prayer for those who hate us. Romans 12 says that if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's our call, to overcome evil with Good, that it often seems easier to fight for Jesus, but our call is to suffer in love for Jesus. But then third and finally, our final heading, it often seems easier to deny Jesus than to suffer for Jesus. And this is what we see in verse 54 to 62 in the text that Peter himself started off in pride and self-righteousness, saying, I, I will never, ever turn away from you, Jesus. I will follow you to the end. Though everyone else turn away, I will not turn away. And at first, it seems right that, that the, these um, evil men, this band of, of thugs, come to take Jesus away. He pulls out his sword to fight. But then when that doesn't work, at first, he runs away like the other disciples um, there's a lot of speculation since the Gospel of Mark is, uh, according to tradition, the, the Gospel witness of Peter that was recorded by Mark. Um, there's this very strange uh, saying in the Gospel of Mark where uh, a man um, ends up running away. One of the disciples runs away naked, uh, that his, his clothes are pulled off and he, he runs away from Jesus. And people say, who is that? Which of the disciples was it? And there's a lot of uh, speculation that it may have been Peter. We don't know for sure. But either way, he, he runs away initially in shame, but then he, he collects himself in some form. He begins to follow Jesus again, but this time it says that he's following at a distance. Jesus is hauled to the house of the high priest, and it's still night, and they're preparing for day when everyone can wake up and they can actually put Jesus on trial. And he comes to the courtyard of this home, and they, they set a fire where people are warming themselves, and, and Peter goes up to the fire to warm himself to watch what will happen. And this is where Peter starts to think that it's easier to deny Jesus than to suffer for Jesus. Because a girl around the fire sees him, probably the light reflecting from the fire, and she says, this man also was with him. And at first, when he denies it, we can think, wow, that was a cowardly thing to do. 
But I don't think she was asking just out of interest's sake of, oh, well, nice to meet you, Mr. Follower of, of Jesus. But there's this hostility. I mean, they're right where Jesus is being held. These are people who hate Jesus, who he, hate his teaching. Uh, and, and so there could actually be a positive motivation at first for Peter where he's thinking, I want to be close to where Jesus is so I can watch and see what's going on. And if I just give myself up as a follower uh, of Jesus, well, then I won't be able to do any good here. And so the best course of action is to deny that I even know Jesus so I can stay close to him in some way. But then another person says, you also are one of them. Recognizing him perhaps as one of the followers of Jesus, and he denies it a second time. And then a third person says, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Presumably they recognize that he is a Galilean from the, the north of Israel because of his accent. In a similar way that in this region, somebody with a thick southern accent will stand out. People say, you're not from around here, are you? That people are saying, you're not from around here. We know that you're from Galilee, so you must be a follower of Jesus. And Peter senses the hostility. He senses the, the danger, the prospect of suffering for Jesus along with Jesus. And he says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And as soon as he utters those words for the third time, it says that the, the rooster crowed, fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus. And we get this striking note that only appears here in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus looked at Peter. And we don't know how to visualize what this looked like. Maybe Jesus was in view the whole time, being held by the officials, and somehow through the crowd in that moment, as he denies him for the third time, they make eye contact. Or maybe Jesus was hauled by in that moment and looks at Peter. But one way or another, their, their eyes meet at the moment of denial. And we can say, what was the expression on Christ's face? What did Peter see in the eyes of Jesus? Was it anger? Was it disappointment? Was it love? Was it grief? Was it suffering? We don't know exactly what it was, but I, I love how Matthew Henry says that the, the, this gaze of Jesus was a sermon in the heart of Peter, that it was a, a sermon preached in the heart of Peter without words, seeing the love that, that at this very moment saying, Peter, do you really not know me? as I am preparing to go suffer for your sins. And of course, I think that, that we can be a lot like Peter, that we start off with good intentions, but then we end up denying Christ in small ways and big ways to, to be popular, to seem smart, to seem intellectual, to seem with the, the cultural program, to, to not have people think that there's, there's something wrong with us. And so we begin to shy away from proclaiming the name of Christ. And it could even just be something as simple as silence, failing to tell others about the, the love and the mercy of Jesus, uh, that we don't want people to know that we're Christians because we fear what they might think. We think it's easier to be anonymous Christians, uh, to be people who, who don't actively proclaim the name of Jesus. But, but listen to what the Apostle Paul says about denial of Christ in 2 Timothy 2, he says that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. 
If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Which is a terrifying phrase, isn't that? That that if we deny him, he also will deny us. And then he continues in verse 13 that lest we think there's no hope, he says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And so here in our text, we see really two men who are faithless. We see two men who are denying Christ in different ways. We see Judas denying Christ. We see Peter denying Christ. And we're tempted to say that what Peter did was somehow less heinous. But it was only less heinous because of the outcome in the end, but not in the moment that they were both turning away from Jesus. But then you think about, I even Googled lists, you know, Google a list of backstabbers in history. Who are the greatest backstabbers of all time? And Judas always makes the list. And he always makes the list with Benedict Arnold and, and Brutus and, and Cassius and um, all of the, the great traitors in history. But then there's always a name that is missing on those lists. And it's the name of Simon Peter. Why isn't Peter listed with all of the great traitors of history? And it's because of what that gaze of Jesus did on his heart. That he saw the love and the mercy, the hope that was being held out to him. He realized that though he was faithless, that Christ is faithful. He saw that though he had denied Christ, that Christ cannot deny himself. And that his covenant promises are rooted in his own character. And it caused him to, to first to feel grief for his sin. And then eventually to repent. And, and we read elsewhere in scripture that after the resurrection, Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And three times he said, I love you, I love you, I love you. Rolling back this betrayal, reasserting his, his love for Christ as he's commissioned as, an, as a disciple and as a leader in the early church. And that is such great hope for you and for me that, that when we deny Christ, when we are ashamed of Christ, when we're tempted to, to follow sin, the path of least resistance, what seems right in our own eyes, rather than what is right in God's eyes, that the answer is not shame that leads to death like Judas, but the answer is repentance that leads to life like Peter, that we can turn to him, we can rest in him, we can have hope in him. And sometimes it's hard, sometimes it brings suffering, sometimes it's not easy, but it's always worth it because Jesus is always worth it. As Paul says in the passage I read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Let's pray.